Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everybody to episode 17 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing? Hello, good. I'm looking forward to telling this story today. It's always um, exciting to tell one that hasn't been covered before, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and it required a bit of digging as well, some old uh, archived articles from the uh, State Library. So it's going to be a a good one to cover, but a very disturbing one all all the same. So before we get into that, Chloe, we've got some uh, more supporters on Patreon this week. We do. Welcome and thank you to Katie, Alyssa Zhu, Laura McAllister, and someone with the username C31680014. Um, It could be a droid from Star Wars supporting (laughs) us there. So, Thank you to whoever you are. (laughs) Thank you very much for the support. We appreciate it. Before we get started today, we just wanted to say that this episode contains descriptions of a graphic nature and discusses crimes against children. So we advise our listeners to exercise self-care and to look after themselves when listening to this episode. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the warped mind of another suspect in the past two cases we've covered. He's particularly popular for the Adelaide Oval abduction, which we covered last week. But as we'll see, this man's twisted criminality escalated at the very least a few years before that. But the most disturbing thing of all is the phantom-like everyman quality this guy had. Very much a knockabout local guy who had everyone's trust and as a result, he found himself in a position where he could have potentially eliminated any trace of not only his criminal history, but his working history too, making it almost impossible to place this guy anywhere at any time with any degree of certainty. So we may never truly know how bad this guy really was. Richard Tuff was a 40-year-old man when he rolled into Townsville on the 27th of August, 1970. He was a carpenter by trade, and since leaving his native New Zealand in 1952, he had been an itinerant worker, completing construction in the nickel mines near Kalgoorlie, 
then on the Woomera rocket range. After getting itchy feet, Tuff headed north in search of his next adventure, and the next choice he made would redefine the word adventure for him. At a fork in the road, Tuff had the choice of heading towards Darwin or Townsville. He chose the latter. When he arrived in the otherwise quiet coastal city late in the evening on the 27th, Tuff encountered immediate panic within the local community. Two young girls, sisters, had disappeared on their walk to school the morning prior to his arrival. Tuff, a man of action, joined a small search party first thing the following morning in hopes of an outcome for the distraught parents. At 8.45am, Tuff jumped into a taxi with two other men. They headed to Charters Towers Highway, where first they searched around that area, before heading to an area near Antill Creek. The trio set off on foot, traversing the creek bank and dry creek bed. While doing this, Tuff noticed what appeared to be a child's footprints in the sand. He followed the steps along the creek bed for just a short distance before he spotted a child. She was in a reclined position, set in a small hollow or depression, and only had on a pair of white underpants. Her skin was a grey-blue colour, and there was no doubt to him that she was dead. When police arrived a short time later, they searched more of the area and discovered the body of a second young girl. It didn't take long to confirm that these were the bodies of the sisters, Susan and Judith Mackay. Susan Mackay was five and her older sister Judith was seven. They were the youngest of six kids in the Mackay family. Described as late lambs, the pair were quite a bit younger than their two older brothers and two older sisters. They were a pair of tanned, brown-eyed beauties, the young Mackay girls, and on the morning of August the 26th, 1970, they began their day as they would any other day. They awoke a while after their father, Bill, had already departed for his meatworks job. Bill had kissed the girls as they slept, as he did every morning, before heading off to work before sunrise. The girls prepared for school, their mum Thelma helping them get ready, before they left their house in Albert Street at Conveyle, walked to the corner and turned onto Alice Street, where they would usually wait for their bus at a nearby stop. Their brother Alan rode past the bus stop about 10 minutes later on his push bike and the girls went there. They didn't attend school either, but the panic button wasn't hit until later in the afternoon when the sisters hadn't returned home from school. Bill and Thelma Mackay reported the girls missing to police and a search ensued immediately, with the police and family friends fanning out across the neighbourhood in search of the five- and seven-year-old. By the end of the night, no trace had been found of the girls. Bill was basically paralysed in fear and Thelma required sedation. She was understandably beside herself. The following day, hordes of volunteers from nearby homes and businesses joined in the search for the sisters, and the police continued diligent door-knocking throughout Aitkenvale. And this is when the drifter chippy Richard Tuff joined in the search, going with the two men he'd never met in a cab to Antill Creek on a search coordinator's request. When Tuff discovered the body of Suzanne first, it took the police an hour to get to the scene, before they searched the rest of the area and found seven-year-old Judith. Both girls had been stabbed in the chest and sexually assaulted. Susan had been strangled and Judith, while seemingly attempting to flee, had been chased down and asphyxiated. 
shoved face first into the sand until she choked to death. Their belongings were all placed with a creepy neatness near their bodies. Their uniforms had been folded inside out, socks, shoes and hats, all left in a neat bundle. Their lunches and skipping rate were nearby too. Antill Creek was about 25 kilometres southwest of Townsville and a bit of a barren scrubland that had bovine and feral pigs rooting around in the undergrowth. A saving grace was the pigs hadn't got to the girls' bodies. But the police now had the horrible task of informing the Mackay family of their loss while simultaneously getting the investigative wheels in motion. As you'd expect, going back to this time, Random crimes, especially against children, were not a common occurrence at all. Most homicides were the result of domestic violence situations or fights and assaults that went too far. In these instances, the perpetrator was easily identified. But that wasn't the case back in 1970. Less was known about these types of attacks and the kind of person who commit them. The public of Townsville were united in their grief for the Mackay family and their demand for police to find and arrest the person responsible was reinforced by police command who wanted swift justice dealt. From the outset, the issue was not too few leads and suspects but too many. Townsville was and still is a military city. Combine that with the local meatworks, which was a big industry at the time, and not every worker there had an immaculate record. These factors presented a large potential suspect pool, barracks full of soldiers and floors full of butchers and slaughtermen. In addition to that was the internal and external pressure, and the police were always going to have their hands full with finding their man in this crime. A slower, more methodical approach would have been the answer to solving a crime that yielded very few direct clues. But there were some, and that was the police's first job, sifting through and trying to knit together the many witness accounts surfacing. And they didn't all match one another either, which made the task of figuring out what was true and false all the more difficult. Judith Drysdale was a local teacher, and she reported seeing a man, someone she didn't know, driving alongside the Mackay sisters and staring at them intently. At the time, it didn't mean a lot, but now considering what happened... This man's face had somewhat made it into her conscience. There was an Indigenous hostel behind the bus stop where the Mackay sisters were last seen and a lady who resided there named Nola Archie had seen the two girls speaking with a man in a car which she said might have been a Holden. A man named Bill Hankin, who was working road construction at the time, driving a roller near the Aitkenvale Primary School, noticed a man with two girls in his car around quarter past eight in the morning. Hankin had pulled over for a smoke and a cup of tea when he noticed this man driving the two girls in the opposite direction to where everyone else was heading. He was going away from the school while everyone was dropping their kids off, so this stood out to Hankin. He described the driver, and he noted this guy was an erratic driver as well. A thin-faced, thinly built, sun-tanned and swarthy, not tall, with short, dark, wavy hair a bit like the character Bo from the TV soap drama Days of Our Lives, but older, he'd later tell the police. Around this same time, there was another man named Neil Lunny with a report, and this would be one of the best sightings and descriptions to date. Lunny, who worked at the army barracks at the time, having just returned from Vietnam, was running late to work that day when he came up behind a car which was driving erratically. Lunny tried to overtake and, in his words, the driver tried to put me over the embankment. I did my cool. 
I was going to bumper roll him when I got up level with him, I saw the kids in the car. He described both girls and the green Aitken Vale school uniforms they were wearing. Their descriptions fit the Mackay sisters to a T. Lunny, being a trained military man, was adept at absorbing the details of the man he was now launching a verbal tirade upon. This guy had high cheekbones, dark hair, and Mickey Mouse ears that stuck out from the narrow skull. Unfortunately, Lunny's focus was on the man who'd infuriated him, not so much on the vehicle he was driving. He described the car simply as blue-grey in colour, like a battleship, wasn't a Ford but could have been a Holden, and it had an odd-coloured driver's door. A lady named Jean Thwaite ran a service station in the town of Eyre, which was about an hour's drive southwest of Townsville. On this day, she was cleaning a car when another pulled into her driveway to buy some petrol. The driver, a thin, dark-haired man in his 40s, wearing a faded off-white shirt, wasn't chatty with her. In fact, he ignored her when she asked him to turn the car motor off as she pumped fuel for him. But it was Jean's knowledge of cars here that was interesting and would once again, like Lunny's description, have an impact on the direction of the subsequent police investigation. She recalled the car as beige or dirty white, but it was also dusty. But more importantly, she noted the petrol inlet was on the left side and had a flap to open before you got to a screw cap, and this was similar to Thwaites' own 1965 EH Holden. So this ruled out the possibility the vehicle was a 50s model Holden for police when they combined it with the descriptions from both Lunny and Hankin. But unbeknownst to Thwaite and police at the time, This left-hand side screw cap inlet was also a feature on the considerably less common Vauxhall Victor motor vehicle. Thwaite, who had a five-year-old child of her own, noticed two kids in the car, a small girl in the back and a slightly older girl in the front. The little girl in the back had reddened eyes and seemingly tear-stained cheeks. She asked the man, are we there yet? The older girl in the front seat then said, when are you taking us to mummy? You promised to take us to mummy. Thwaite noticed both of the girls had on green school uniforms, and after the driver handed her the precise change for the transaction, he took off without delay. The next day, when Jean Thwaite heard about the abduction of the Mackay sisters, she was certain she'd spotted them in the car with this man, but the local police didn't seem to take her reported sighting particularly seriously. With all of these leads and the overwhelming pressure from the hierarchy and community to get a result... The police made choices that inevitably shaped the outcome of the investigation. They decided to go down the route of locating the driver via the car description, instead of narrowing in on the descriptions of the suspect himself. There were no sketches made or published. Instead, photos of late model FJ Holdens were circulated, noting the off-coloured driver's door. Although most witnesses had described what they thought was a Holden, a couple of initial reports did mention the uncommon Vauxhall Victor. However, these witnesses, probably feeling the pressure to help the police in their search, would eventually concede and sign statements saying they had indeed seen what was likely a Holden. It was a great example of tunnel vision and a decision that would put the investigation so many steps back that it would never truly recover. For the killer, this mistake was a genuine stroke of luck. But for the broader community... It could also have been a choice that cost many more lives in the future. At the Whitehorse Tavern in Charters Towers, one midweek afternoon in September of 1970, 19-year-old John White was enjoying a hard-earned beer having just finished his shift at the local psychiatric hospital. 
White was a trainee nurse there nowadays, but had previously worked as a carpenter, bridge builder and a meat worker. As he savoured his golden foamy post-shift treat, White saw a man saunter in and approach the bar. The place was near empty and the man sat near White, asked him for a light as he rolled a cigarette, then bought some matches from the barmaid when White said he didn't smoke. White thought the man was in his 50s, wiry and fit, average height, wearing a flannelette shirt, brown trousers and a brown hat. The men began talking and the man asked White if he'd been following the murder of the Mackay sisters in the news. White confirmed he had and the man chimed that the police were looking for the wrong sort of car. And before White even had the chance to ask a follow-up, the man kept on talking, saying, you know, I killed those two girls. White was surprised by the man's candour but thought it likely a poor joke from someone with a warped sense of humour but something didn't seem right about the comment all the same. White continued chatting with the man who told him he was a carpenter, staying at the Crown Hotel nearby. He did mostly maintenance work and sometimes prospected in local creeks. White kept on chatting with him and it was almost like this older bloke had this urge to open up to someone, to get the monkey off his back, so to speak, and White was the guy he chose to tell it to. The man got up to leave the tavern and White penciled in another catch-up for a beer with the carpenter tomorrow night, the next day. At the end, he carefully slipped in the question, so what's your name? The drink wasn't the only thing White penciled in. As soon as the man left, White grabbed an empty box of matches from across the bar and scrawled the man's name on it. He then took the matchbox to the local police, one of whom he knew, Constable John Cooper. White relayed the encounter, what the man said and where he was staying. The police visited the man and the next day he arrived at the tavern and had another drink with White. The man wasn't worried about the police visit at all. In fact, White said he was quite cocksure of himself. They had a beer and the man showed White a picture of his house before he left. White never saw the man again. When he asked Constable Cooper about the visit, Cooper said they'd gone to see him but there was nothing in it. And as far as John White was concerned, that was it. He never gave the weird encounter with the carpenter another thought. But the name he wrote on the matchbox was forever etched into his memory. And that name was Artie Brown. March 1972 would see the disappearances of two young girls in northern Queensland. Separate incidents, the first, two-year-old Marie Kitchen from Mount Isa, turned out to be a murder at the hands of her mother's boyfriend, a sad case of escalated domestic violence. The second was the disappearance of Marilyn Wallman at Imeo, on the coast near Mackay. Marilyn came from a family of sugarcane farmers and she was just 14 when she went missing. On Tuesday the 21st of March, Marilyn and her two younger brothers, David who was 10 and Rex 8, left the Warman farmhouse on their bikes heading towards the bus stop at the end of their road. Marilyn left just a couple of minutes before the boys did. She went to the local high school and the boys were still at the local primary school. The long road leading down to the bus stop had a decent hill not long from the Warman's house, so you couldn't see over the crest of the hill from the house, and this part you couldn't see was the longest stretch of road. 
As David and Rex pedalled up the hill and over it a few minutes behind their sister, they hit the downslope and spotted Marilyn's bike lying on its side, the back tyre still spinning. The brothers looked at each other dumbfounded and had a quick look around the area, calling out to their sister. Initially, the brothers thought Marilyn may have fallen from her bike and hit her head, maybe wandered off into the cane fields in a daze. David went back to the house to fetch their mother, while Rex stayed waiting beside the bike. He thought he heard some voices on the other side of the cane field, but he couldn't tell if it was his sister. David and his mother returned with their car and drove the streets surrounding the cane field, searching for any sign of Marilyn, but they didn't spot her or any sign of where she might have gone. Marilyn's father was out fishing at the time, so the now-distraught family sent someone to go and fetch him, and he returned quickly to join the search for their missing daughter and sister. To this day, some 47 years later, no trace of Marilyn Warman has ever been found. And as we've covered in the past couple of weeks, the unknown is just so much more crippling than knowing and finding the body of a loved one. That's equally as tragic to have lost them in such a devastating fashion, don't get me wrong, but the enduring pain and lack of closure for a long-term missing, presumed murdered family member would be an extremely difficult thing to live with. But the Walmans had to live with it, that lack of closure, which, if anything, was at least something the Mackay family had. By 1973, the Mackays had moved from Townsville to Toowoomba, to leave behind the hurt and reinforcement of their loss from well-intended locals. And it would be in 1973, on the third anniversary of their daughter's horrifying murders, that the Mackays would hear news from South Australia that two girls had been abducted from the Adelaide Oval. 11-year-old Joanne Ratcliffe and 4-year-old Kirsty Gordon were taken by force from the ground under the noses of 12,000 people, just as the Beaumont children vanished from a beach in a similar-sized crowd some seven years earlier. We covered this case in detail last week, so head back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. But of particular relevance to this tale is a sighting by a lady named Sue Laurie. On the afternoon of the girl's abduction from the Adelaide Oval, Sue was walking with her father and little sister along the banks of the Torrens, having just visited the zoo. The siren sounded at the oval, which was about a kilometre away, and Sue's father commented that it was likely signalling the end of the third quarter or start of the fourth. They continued walking along the riverbank towards the newly constructed Adelaide Festival Theatre. A few minutes later, Sue spotted a middle-aged man carrying a little girl under his arm, with another young girl chasing after him, punching him and yelling, we want to go back. At the time, Sue was surprised the man didn't reprimand who she thought was most likely his granddaughter. But she watched long enough to absorb the details and form a good picture of the man in her mind, even though she wouldn't actually come forward to police with this sighting until several years after it had occurred, around 1980. Her description of the man matched that of other sightings from the Oval that day and the sketch released by police, a thin-faced man in his 40s to 50s. But most intriguingly, the man wore a wide-brimmed hat with a low crown, which was very distinctive in Adelaide at the time. The only time Sue had seen one similar was visiting relatives in Queensland. That's why years later she described the hat as a very Queensland country style. In winter in Adelaide at this time, it was more common to see a man around his age wearing something like a tweed peaked hat or one of felt with a much narrower brim. So this stood out. 
That and the man's thin, hollow-cheeked face. Sue, being only 14 at the time, didn't keep up with the events of the abduction thereafter, as the family went on a holiday the following day, so she missed a lot of the news coverage surrounding it until it came out upon their return, at which time her father thought she probably had the times wrong and they just dismissed it. It would only be years later, after marrying and having children of her own, that she reported what she'd seen to the police. But Sue's sighting alone wasn't enough to positively identify a culprit in the Adelaide Oval abductions, and as we covered last week, the case remains unsolved to this day. But this wouldn't be the last we'd hear from Sue Laurie about this sighting on the banks of the Torrens that day in 1973. On the 28th of July 1975, teenager Catherine Graham was selling encyclopedias door-to-door near Townsville, Queensland. After a hard day's work, Catherine called her mother from a payphone, where during the call she stated to her mum that, "'There is someone peering at me, mum, and I don't like the look of him.'" She ended the call and proceeded to the Rising Sun Fish and Chip shop where she bought herself a hamburger. This was just after 8pm by this time. Catherine then visited a friend at the Townsville General Hospital, attended the post office around 9pm, then visited a family friend in the Hyde Park area. These were Catherine's last known movements. Unfortunately, her body was discovered the following day, 24 kilometres west of Townsville, in long grass off the Flinders Highway, only 500 metres from where the bodies of the Mackay sisters had been found around five years earlier. She had been brutally beaten, and it was stated by the police that there were similarities with the Mackay sisters' murders in the way the body was disposed, and potentially other elements which they didn't disclose. Police would later state that there were potentially more than one culprit in this murder, although they didn't elaborate on the thinking around that, A semen sample from the scene was taken, indicating sexual assault and a matching MO to that of the Mackay murders. However, that sample was too weak to provide any useful forensic evidence in years to come. So we have a spate of crimes here, a number of sightings and descriptions. Other than the chance encounter with the carpenter, who reported his conversation to police and they'd subsequently checked and ruled it out, these crimes had no prime suspect at the time, no name connected to these mysterious cases. That would all change in 1998, some 20-odd years later, when the public would get to know that same name on the matchbox that John White had seen all those years ago. Mel Moss was sitting in her apartment in Perth looking through some old family albums when she came across the sight of an old man she despised. This man had molested at least five members in her extended family that she knew of and the sight of his thin face repulsed her. She'd harboured this secret for half of her life, and she wanted to tell someone, someone outside of the family, what she knew and had kept under wraps all of these years. Merle, her sister Christine Millier, and two of their cousins had succumbed to family pressure to keep a lid on this old man's pedophilic ways many years ago, the belief at the time being that it would cause undue stress and embarrassment to those who'd suffered in his hands to bring up the allegations once again, thereby causing them to relive it. It was an old method of thinking and it had eaten away at Mel for years. Her sister and their two cousins shared that feeling and they all had a deep, dark feeling that this old man was more than just a child molester, but they had no evidence of it. And Merle worried that if she made the call to police to tell her story, that any inquiries they made into the old man would just find an old pensioner and his wife 
in a sleepy hollow of Townsville, innocently pottering about in their retirement years. But something came over Merle this October Eve in 1998, and as a Crime Stoppers number popped up on the television screen, the urge overpowered her and she made the call, reporting her story about the old man from the photo. The report took a few days to make it onto the desk of a Detective Hickey, and as a routine inquiry, he phoned the lady from Perth, this Merle Moss, and spoke with her, listened to her story. In a strange twist of fate, the Queensland homicide detective happened to be reviewing the cold case murders of two sisters in Townsville from back in 1970, some 28 years ago by this time. When Detective Hickey told Merle Moss about this, she took it as a sign and opened up completely to the detective about her, her sister and two cousins' tales about the man they suspected might be much worse than most in their family initially thought. Detective Hickey and his partner, Detective Rook, began an extensive and exhaustive line of inquiries after this report from Merle, working from her inner circle outwards. Their inquiries took them interstate and at one point even to New Zealand, where the two dogged detectives pieced together a dark and suppressed history of a man named Arthur Brown. Detectives learned that back in 1982, after one girl came forward to family, another four followed with allegations Brown had molested them as children. From this point onwards, Brown, who until this point was just a big noter who considered himself a bit of a ladies' man, was now known as a child molester by those in the family who were aware of the allegations. While many people in Merle and Christine's seemingly salt-of-the-earth family were surprised to hear the accusations against Brown, many of them quietly confirmed the long-buried family secrets. But the truth of what fueled Arthur Brown would unfold slowly and sickeningly in front of the detective's eyes as they probed further into this man's life. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Arthur Stanley Brown was born on the 20th of May 1912 in Marinda in Queensland. He was one of three children and his parents separated when he was quite young. Arthur then moved to Melbourne with his mother where he apparently did his schooling, worked as a paperboy before getting his driver's licence and moving back to Queensland. Here he latched on to the Anderson family who lived in nearby Bowen. The Anderson family had two sons and six daughters, most younger than Brown. And Mrs Anderson and a few of her daughters ran the galley, where they catered for workers at the Ross River Meatworks. Brown worked here for a time during and after the war, before he eventually went on to work for the Board of Public Works as a maintenance carpenter. 
Photos of Brown around the age of 19 showed a thin, fit, wiry, tough physique with a long face and jaw, high cheekbones, wingnut ears and short dark brown hair, very neatly cut. Brown aged well, being an active man who didn't drink much. He revelled in comments that alluded to him looking much younger than he was. It was said he could look as much as 15 years younger than he actually was. And this was a glimpse into the man's ego and exhibitionist tendencies. In his 50s, Brown would still showcase his agility, gripping table edges and lifting himself up above into the air to showcase his strength. Second to this, Brown displayed an almost compulsive neatness, spit-shined shoes and impeccably pressed clothes that were said to be ironed with knife-edge creases. Brown would end up marrying two of the Anderson sisters, The first would be Hester, who he'd wed in June 1944. Hester was recently divorced when she got together with Brown and she had three children of her own from this previous relationship. Hester and Brown lived a seemingly normal life for 34 years. However, Hester's older sister, Millie, had a feeling about Brown very early on. She did not like him and one time told some of their relatives that Hester had confided some disturbing details about Brown to her saying with regards to his supposed womanising that he didn't just like big girls, but he liked young girls too. Apparently Hester had caught Brown molesting a child once, and since that time, she went to great lengths to ensure he wasn't left alone with any kids. But as she hit middle age, Hester unfortunately became quite crippled with arthritis, and she relied heavily upon Brown to care for her as time went on. And during this time, Hester's younger sister, Charlotte, would spend an increasing amount of time at the Brown household, apparently to help out an increasingly immobile Hester. But Hester suspected ulterior motives, and she confided to a family member once. One time Hester gave this female relative some cherished lacework of hers and said that after she was gone, she didn't want Brown's next lady love to have it. When the family member inquired as to who she meant by lady love, Hester replied, Charlotte, of course. On the 15th of May 1978, Arthur Brown would phone their family doctor and advise that Hester had fallen while trying to go to the toilet and had hit her head so hard that the blow she sustained had actually killed her. Prior to this, Hester had become quite immobile, heavily reliant upon Brown, and she'd been pretty much confined to their home in Rossley for many of her final days. And it appeared that due to her age and fragility, she'd simply taken a tumble, such a bad fall that it resulted in her losing her life. But what happened after this isn't something we'd see nowadays, definitely indicative of the times. The doctor wrote out a death certificate without seeing the body, and Brown took Hester to an undertaker himself and had her cremated. This meant that the injuries to her skull never got examined by an official post-mortem. Brown apparently told family members he had paid for a post-mortem, but this turned out to be a lie. While most of the family simply grieved and mourned Hester's passing, some had their suspicions of Brown, some even alleging that he had a hand in her death, noting that on the day of Hester's passing, Brown didn't seem to be grieving or upset, but shaking with worry and fright. This was unusual for him, as it was said that Brown rarely showed emotion. But one thing did turn out to be true, Hester's prediction about Brown's next lady love. Whatever suspicions a small number of family members had and gossiped about, it didn't seem to bother Charlotte, Hester's younger sister, all that much. 
Within 12 months, she'd moved into Brown's house and they'd married. Charlotte was a very petite woman and she was observed by family displaying this peculiar habit of wearing kids' pyjamas. One time, a family member asked her about why she wore these and Brown interjected sharply, saying, because she's my little girl. Merle and Christine, who we mentioned earlier, spent some time around Brown as young girls, but he never molested them. They had a couple of close calls, however. Their mum was Hester and Charlotte's cousin, so they often visited the Brown household growing up. In their younger years, they always saw Arthur Brown as a kind of happy-go-lucky, chatty old fella who liked the attention and conversation to be on and about him. But as they grew a bit older, they saw kinks in Brown's facade and started finding him off-putting with his constant bragging. Brown would often show them and other cousins these true crime magazines he had, some with graphic descriptions and pictures of crimes against children. And he'd use these as a platform to begin preaching about how unsafe it was for girls to be alone, and that he saw many silly mothers dropping their children at school too early. He'd further go on about young girls being prick-teasers, and that it was too easy for male teachers to end up in trouble these days. He felt sorry for them, because all these young girls would so easily cry rape nowadays. That kind of carry-on would get a man hung. Christine and Merle grew quite weary and wary of Arthur Brown's lurid ramblings, even as young teenagers, and they recalled vividly how their grandfather detested Brown, wouldn't even be in the same room as him, and told the girls to see after themselves, don't be on your own with him. Merle was too old of a target for Brown. However, Christine had a couple of close calls when visiting, where Brown had come home early or happened upon her by herself and attempted to lure her for a swim or a quiet drive. She was too articulate and assertive for Brown and got herself out of those sticky situations. In 1982, when the allegations of Brown being a molester surfaced, many of the family began re-examining seemingly harmless conversations and things Brown had said over the years, looking at them in a different light now they knew the predator he was. One such comment another relative of the family would recall was something Brown had said in the weeks after the murders of the Mackay sisters. I could have done that, he said to her. She thought nothing of it at the time, that he wasn't the type, but in 1982, after all of the pedophilic activity had been exposed, she wondered, but ultimately decided not to go to the police at the time because it would put undue strain on the family members, the victims, who Brown had molested. Christine also recalled a time when she took some children for a walk. These kids were referred to as wards of the state, but I'm guessing foster children is the more contemporary term. Uh, But on their walk, they spotted Arthur Brown, and this was after his predilection for children had come out, and these kids yelled out, calling him a rock spider, which Christine discovered later was a slang term for child molester. Family members would also recall another odd and disturbing bit of information from the time after the Mackay sisters' murders. They recalled Brown taking off the odd-coloured door of his Vauxhall Victor and burying it, after reports surfaced that the police were looking for a Holden with an odd-coloured driver's side door. Brown said it was so they wouldn't come annoying him or questioning him about it. The family members took it at face value at the time because it was being widely publicised that the police were looking for someone driving a Holden, not a Vauxhall. 
Brown even offered to drive Merle and Christine to the site where the Mackay sisters had been found, claiming, what would prove to be a lie, that he knew the girl's father and had worked with him. Merle and Christine refused to go, but recalled this story, among many others their family members remembered, when speaking to Detectives Hickey and Rook in what was now 1998. The detectives had been working away tirelessly, interviewing family and re-examining missed clues, subsequently discovering new evidence since Merle Moss's initial report. On December the 3rd, 1998, the police came for Arthur Stanley Brown at his home, Detectives, photographers, forensic experts and army personnel with metal detectors arrived, intent on finding the buried car door. After building their case up over the past 6 to 12 months, police had compiled 45 charges against Brown, with allegations ranging from sexual assault to murder. It was said that Arthur Brown didn't raise an eyebrow when police detailed the charges against him. He did, however, instantly query the name of one of the sexual abuse victims, but when the officer corrected this name from the woman's married-to maiden name, one that Brown knew, he simply nodded. The police found no evidence of a Vauxhall Victor, no ownership, rego or insurance paperwork, no door in the backyard. Brown initially denied owning the car at all, but seemingly conceded when police produced a photo of it which had been supplied by a family member. As the thorough search of the property concluded, the police, only finding a few small things to link Brown to the allegations, Brown said to a worried Charlotte that he'd done some terrible things she didn't know about and it was time to pay for them. Brown initially denied even knowing about the Mackay sisters' case, but this was eventually proven untrue. Having lived in Townsville for 30 years, Brown was well aware of who they were and what had happened to them. But his attitude was indicative of how this questioning and subsequent trial was going to go. Detectives took Brown for a dithery old man at first. He was 82 by this time. But he displayed signs of sharpness when confronted with the prospect of going to Antill Creek with detectives. No way am I going out there with you. Then he promptly called for a lawyer, a good one, named Mark Donnelly. From this time on, Arthur Brown was completely silent and his wife Charlotte refused to repeat anything she'd previously muttered in an informal setting for a formal statement. The only thing police found upon searching the Brown residence was an old stained white singlet and work clothes. Relatives claimed Brown, an impeccably dressed man and obsessively neat, would never have worn an old stained singlet, further suggesting he'd worn it on the day he murdered the Mackay sisters and kept it as a trophy of sorts. John White, who'd met Brown at the tavern in Charters Towers some 28 years earlier now, heard of the arrest of a suspect in the Mackay sisters' case. I bet his name is Artie Brown, he thought. White spent several sleepless days and nights jotting down things as he remembered them, the name, place, police he reported to, times, before calling the Brisbane CIB to report what he knew. Sue Laurie, now living in Melbourne, saw the suspect Arthur Brown's face on a television news report in connection with the arrest over the Mackay sisters' murder. The case had made national headlines by this time. She recognised the man's face but couldn't place it exactly. She'd seen him somewhere. The following morning, while speaking with a friend from Adelaide, where she used to live, it all came flooding back to her. And this was before the friend had mentioned the potential connection between Brown and the Adelaide Oval abductions. My God, it's him, Laurie exclaimed, finally placing the face. 
This was the man she'd seen on the banks of the Torrens all those years ago, fending off the older girl with the younger girl under his arm. She was sure of it. Brown was older and perhaps a bit more gaunt, but as we said earlier, his overall look hadn't changed a whole lot from his 40s, aside from wrinkling skin and great hair. New faces would also appear with tales about Brown, filling in many gaps for police as they readied for trial. John Hill was a young 16-year-old carpenter apprentice back in 1974-75 and had worked with Brown and the Public Works Department on and off for around 18 months. He recalled a time where they were driving past the Townsville Police Station in Brown's Vauxhall when he mentioned that the case of the Mackay sisters was still unsolved. Brown, who as we said was an arrogant big noter, had a constant habit in conversation to one-up his counterpart. He replied, I know all about that, I did it. Hill was chilled by the comment at the time because of the way Brown's face looked when he said it, but once again he pushed it to the back of his mind because it seemed so out of character with the obsessively neat and capable carpenter that he knew. Being young and it not coming up again, Hill simply locked it away until he saw the news 28 years later. He'd not forgotten the comment entirely. And from Hill would come a detailed profile of how this chameleon, Arthur Brown, had lived under their noses all these years. He had everyone's trust, having worked maintenance for schools, police stations, government buildings, the courthouse, prisons. He'd had coffee with bailiffs and chatted about repossessed items to be sold at auction with the police. Brown even took smoko breaks with the police and it was suggested that certain records, namely work records and some police evidence and statements, went missing with inexplicable reasoning. Brown had unvetted access to many buildings holding this material. But it proved excruciatingly fruitless as police tried to investigate Brown's life and movements over the past 40 years. They were unable to tell where he'd travelled and when he'd taken holidays. It would only be word-of-mouth accounts from people like Sue Laurie for the Adelaide Oval case and his extended family, people like Christine Millier and Merle Moss, who would potentially connect Brown with the other crimes. It was suggested that around the time of Marilyn Wallman's disappearance that the Browns had taken a trip to see Hester's relatives in nearby Mackay. Their car broke down at one point, causing them to come back to Townsville by train. However, Brown later went back to retrieve the vehicle on his own and didn't return to Townsville for some time. Police have only been able to confirm that a chalky blue Vauxhall Victor was seen in the area around the time of Marilyn's disappearance. Nothing else connecting Brown has surfaced, but he remains a prime suspect. The 1985 murder of Catherine Graham, the young woman who'd been bookselling door-to-door, Her body was found only 500 metres from the site where the Mackay sisters had been discovered and there were similarities in the crime scenes. It also came out she'd been selling books in the vicinity of Brown's house that day. However, no other connection to Brown has been made and police initially believed more than one person might be responsible for this crime, although I'm not sure if that thought is still contemporary. Brown would also be connected as a potential suspect in the disappearance of the Beaumont children by association with his connection to the Adelaide Oval case. And once again, no official records could place Brown in Adelaide ever. Just one tale Christine Millier recalled when Brown told her he'd seen the Adelaide Festival Theatre just before it was finished. 
and this fit with Brown's usual topics of conversation. He had a carpenter's eye for new constructions and often bragged about his travels to Sydney and Melbourne and the architecture he'd seen. It turned out the Adelaide Festival Theatre had completed construction in June of 1973, just two short months before Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon were abducted from the Adelaide Oval. The Festival Theatre looked out across the river at the Oval. But being aged in his mid-80s by the time of his arrest and trial, Arthur Brown wasn't going to be forthcoming with information, especially considering he couldn't remember a lot of the details being put to him. Brown's trial for the murders of Susan and Judith Mackay began on October 18th, 1999. He pleaded not guilty. Many of the witnesses we mentioned earlier were called to testify, Neil Lunny, who had the road rage incident with the man he was positive was Arthur Brown. Bill Hankin, the road worker who pulled over outside the Aitkenvale Primary School for a smoke and saw the abductor with the girls. Jean Thwaite, the service station attendant who'd witnessed the girls crying in the car as she refuelled for the abductor, unbeknownst to her at the time. John Hill, the apprentice carpenter to whom Brown had allegedly confessed. And John White who'd had the chance encounter with Brown at the White Horse Tavern in Charters Towers about 28 years earlier. Despite a strong circumstantial case, Brown, who elected not to take the stand at trial, and his defence team, headed by Mark Donnelly, did a good enough job to get a hung jury. A verdict was not able to be reached. Brown was released on bail pending a retrial, and in August 2000, his defence submitted under Section 613 of the Queensland Criminal Code for a jury verdict on Brown's fitness to stand trial, on the grounds that Brown was mentally incapable of understanding the case against him. Brown's wife, in the meantime, had escalated the submission for him to be deemed unfit for trial to the Queensland Mental Health Tribunal. A series of subsequent appeals and overturnings would inevitably turn out in Brown's favour, when a psychiatric review by the Attorney-General's Department assessed Arthur Brown as unfit to stand trial on the grounds that he had Alzheimer's disease and dementia. The police weren't convinced Brown's mental health had deteriorated to this extent, which was based on their interactions with him and the lies they'd caught him telling. A taxi driver who'd transported Brown and his wife Charlotte also attested to Brown still being relatively sharp, more so than his assessment showed, Police planned to secretly videotape Brown to support this case. However, these plans were eventually aborted. So by July 2001, Arthur Brown was technically a free man again, but he'd been completely abandoned by his extended family. In April 2002, his wife Charlotte passed away. Brown then moved into a nursing home in Melanda, northern Queensland, before he too passed away a few months later on the 6th of July 2002. He'd never been convicted of a criminal offence and officially died an innocent man. So my thoughts on this case, I read that in the lead up to the murder trial for the Mackay sisters case, that there was evidence regarding Brown's pedophilia given at a committal hearing, but that it had been ruled prejudicial at trial, therefore could not be put before the Supreme Court jury. And I know that makes sense from a legal perspective, but... Sometimes you wish things unrelated to the specific charges, but that show someone's character or lack thereof could be included. And as we said, the jury was hung in the case because in the end, the strong but circumstantial evidence wasn't enough. 
can't we decide case by case that someone is a real piece of work and the rules don't apply? <laughs> That's justice, isn't it? Um, and I know I've been saying the last couple of weeks that unsolved murders are so hard to talk about and think about. And I just feel like this isn't much better, is it? I guess it's young people, it just life's taken way too soon. The idea of those two young girls' bodies being found is equally as devastating as the fact that the main suspect died a free man without even being able to stand trial. I hope the families of everyone involved or who came in contact with this man, the ones we have mentioned and who knows who else, has some sort of peace now. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very upsetting and disturbing case, this one. It's highly likely that he committed many more murders, I think, You don't commit a crime like that in the Mackay sisters' case and simply go on with being content with uh, pedophilic activities. It's the mystery around the lack of paper trail for this guy that's the most haunting aspect. Not knowing where he went or when, you know, he, he could have a much more extensive victims list than those officially published and as being potentially linked to him. As for his link to the Beaumont and Adelaide Oval cases, you know, the link is tenuous, unfortunately, but he certainly does have that thin face aspect that both of the sketches display. He has that uh, very uh, very decent resemblance in both of those, but I don't think we'll ever know everything about what Arthur Brown actually did. I think he took many, many deep and dark secrets to his grave. Brown died alone. He had no kids of his own that I understand. And one of his stepchildren said upon his passing, words to the effect of, I can't believe such an insignificant little asshole had such a profound effect on so many people's lives. I think that pretty much sums up any thoughts I have on Arthur Brown. (laughs) I read that too. It does sum it up. Mm. Um, So moving on to our happy thoughts. So Costanza, do you have a happy thought straight up this week? <laughs> I do, and it's movie chat. So, yeah, um, I like it. Book corner, yeah. I know, I'm reading the room. <laughs> uh, it's really cool. So, as you know, um, we had our second little daughter. Obviously, she's come up to six months old now. So um, Amy and I haven't had really any time to sit down and watch a movie together um, with that and the podcast going on. <laughs> but we managed to catch a couple of movies in the last week or so, which has been really good. We watched one, and I forget the name of it, and this is really utterly useless movie review if I can't remember the title. <laughs> but it was a Zach Braff one. It was on Netflix. And it was kind of one of those sort of dark comedies but sort of uplifting, you know, kind of like a – there was a, a movie, Jeff, who lives at home. The, it's and, not or, or, Garden State, is it? No, nah, not Garden okay. State. It's new. It's quite new. Ah. Um, and it had the dude from the dude from Homeland with the beard was his dad in this movie. Yeah, uh, I know the movie. Yeah, and he had the old man passes Definitely away. Definitely should have looked this up. Before I should have looked it up. It. <laughs> it was really good. Uh, really enjoyed it to watch a movie again. <laughs> we also watched a uh, Kurt Russell one, Dark Blue Roadhouse. Not Swayze. <laughs> Isn't that Swayze? No. Oh, no, I don't I'm pretty know. sure. <laughs> okay, go. <laughs> That's not Kurt Russell. <laughs> but this one was really good. It was I hadn't seen it before. It's pretty old. Like it was 2000s. It's a noir one. But it was based on a James Elroy novel. I'm a big Elroy fan. Mm. So that was um that was cool and just nice to sit back and watch a movie or two. Not a murder documentary in preparation for podcasts. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> nice change. <laughs> um, my happy thought this week is that I'm halfway through an eight-week gym challenge and I feel really good in, you know, when you start these things, if you've ever done one, all you really think about is the stuff you'll miss out on. Well, I do mostly the food I can't Mm. have. Um, But I feel, like I said, really good. And 
it's an awesome time to do it because it's super cold and you don't want to be active, but it forces you to in a good way. Um, plus my gym is really fun and not just about being skinny, which as a curvy gal, I love. Um, and I'm getting super strong. So I did a 70 kilo squat this week and that's my happy thought that I could do that. Hey, <laughs> mm. go you. That's good. Thanks. Um, so don't forget you can get in touch with us. If you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $2 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much, much more. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. Thank you to everyone who left a review this week. We saw them and they're awesome. Thank you very much, guys. We appreciate it. And thanks again for listening. We'll catch you all next time on True Blue. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.